Today's reading is taken from the second book of Samuel, um, chapter 7, reading the whole chapter, verses 1 to 29. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house of my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of his entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. And as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. 
And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, so your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. And good morning, everyone. If anyone doesn't know me, my name's Ian. I've been a, a member here at uh, Trinity Church only since we started uh, four years ago. Carl's asked me to preach to you this week and next week. Now, question. How many of you like history? Good, a few hands up. You'll notice my hand isn't up. Um, I enjoyed most of the subjects that I studied in school, and that was in Britain where I grew up. But history was definitely down the bottom of the list. I could never remember which king came after which or who won or lost each of the battles. I dropped it at the first opportunity. I never did find out what happened in Britain after the reign of Elizabeth I. So it was a bit of a surprise to me a couple of years ago when I was studying at the Bible College uh, that I actually found history interesting. Not just the history of the church that I, over the last 2,000 years, but also the history of Israel and Judah recorded in the historical books of the Old Testament. I'm still not strong on the details. Don't come to me if you want to know whether King Jehoahaz came before or after King Jehoahash. But I did learn, enjoy learning about the way God dealt faithfully with his people, even when they turned away from him. So this week and next, we'll be looking at one of the books of history, Second Samuel. It's essentially the story of David's reign from the death of the previous king Saul to David's death before his son Solomon takes the throne. When Carl asked me a few months ago if I would preach two sermons to capture the essential message of 2 Samuel, it seemed like a good thing to do and so I happily agreed. However, when I started doing some research, I discovered that I wasn't the first to preach on 2 Samuel. In fact, back in 1562, which was actually during the reign of Elizabeth I, John Calvin also did a series on 2 Samuel, and he only took 87 sermons to cover the essentials. So I thought I could pinch his sermons and read them very quickly, um, except they might have been a di bit difficult to understand, especially because they're in French. So instead, I'm going to focus down on two passages that I think will give us some insight into David's life and how God was with him. Today I'll be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and next week at chapter 12. Now as I said, 2 Samuel looks at the whole of David's reign and there's a lot in there. So perhaps it'll help a bit if I give a little of the uh, historical context. So at the beginning of the book of 2 Samuel, King Saul is dead. Samuel has long since anointed David as king, but Saul's son Ishbosheth tries to take the throne. He's defeated and there's more fighting. David defeats the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the region around Jerusalem, and sets up his throne in Jerusalem. The Philistines attack. 
that with God's guidance, David defeats them too. And then there was a time of peace. David had the Ark of the Covenant brought into Jerusalem. And that brings us up to today's passage, 2 Samuel 7. It'll help if you've got that passage open because I'll be referring to it a few times. Israel is at peace and King David is established in his palace in Jerusalem. He's often seen as the high point of David's reign. I warn you in advance that next week we'll be looking at what could well be the low point. Some of you may remember back in the previous book of the Bible, uh, 1 Samuel in chapter 13, when Saul failed to follow God's command, Samuel told him that he would be replaced by a man after God's own heart. There's debate over just what that phrase means, but clearly God chose David as a replacement for someone who had not been obedient. So we should be looking to David for an example. There are two aspects of David's actions in this chapter I want to look at today. The first is his willingness to accept God's will. He has a great plan to glorify God, but God's plan is better still. The second point is David's example of how to pray. We'll be looking carefully at the prayer of thanksgiving in the second half of the chapter. I found that a bit challenging. First of all, though, things don't always work out quite as we plan. I've shared with you before, and some may remember, that I had great plans to study for a PhD in Cambridge, uh, not in history, by the way. Um, but instead, things worked out so that I came to Australia to work for CSIRO with much better conditions for research. I met my beautiful wife, Susan, and eventually studied for a Master of Divinity at the Bible College and joined TCU. Not what I was expecting at all. If you were online for the CMS dinner a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard from uh, Malcolm and Ainsley Purdy about their frustrations in waiting many months for a visa for Chile to allow them to take up their missionary roles there. Since then, their prayers and ours have been answered, and they're on the point of departure, so we can give thanks to that that God's plans are not always the same as ours. Chapter 7 of 2 Samuel begins with David having what seems like a great plan. The Lord has given him rest from all his battles within Israel and without, with outside enemies, and he settled down peacefully in a house of cedar. But he's worried that while he's at peace in a comfortable dwelling with strong walls, the ark of God is in a tent. Literally, it says, within curtains. He has a great idea, it seems to him, that he should plan to build a proper temple, a proper house for God. So, what does he do with this idea? Just for a comparison, let's think back again to 1 Samuel 13. Don't, don't need to turn there. King Saul also had what seemed to him like a good idea, to usurp Samuel's place as priest and make sacrifices himself without waiting for Samuel to come. That thoughtless action, ignoring the commands of God, was what caused God to replace him with David. Here, in today's passage, David is wiser than King Saul. He doesn't rush ahead with his plan, but he takes it somewhat diffidently, just pointing out the situation to the prophet, Nathan. You see his words in verse 2? Uh, Look, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan, despite being a prophet, is hastier than David. Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Well, he was half right. God is with David. But there's a problem with their plan. Have you ever brought something from Ikea? 
I don't know about you, but I sometimes have to take a while working out from the plans which piece is which and, and which way up they should be to fit. And taking the pieces apart when you've made the wrong choice can be a bit of a challenge. David and Nathan had a plan, but a key part of it was upside down. Fortunately, that night, before they got too far in the assembly process, Nathan is corrected by God and immediately accepts the correction. He gave David God's assessment of the situation. Now, there's some dispute over how serious God's reprimand of David is, but to me it seems fairly mild. The important thing I want to focus on, though, is David's response, which we'll come to in a moment. So let's just look at verses 4 to 7. God reminds David and Nathan that building a temple is not something that he has commanded. God has no need of a house. He has no need of anything that David can provide. As he tells Job in Job 41, no one can give him anything, for the whole world is his already. In order to be with the people of Israel, his ark has traveled about in a tent, and he's never asked for anything more. It seemed to David that he was now at peace, and so a good time to settle down in one place. However, he was premature in making that judgment, as we shall see next week. God knew better and saw that the time was not right. We learn later in 1 Kings 5 that it was the forthcoming warfare that would surround David that was the reason for the delay. The words that God speaks next, verses 8 to 12, turn the whole situation on its head. He reminds David of his lowly origins and how it is God who has brought him to be the ruler of Israel. And now he promises much more. David's name will be great and his people will be safe from their enemies. It's just as well that David got Nathan to check because he had the plans the wrong way up. Rather than David building a house for God, it will be God who makes a house for David. David's house and his kingdom will be established forever. But there's still more to come in verses 13 to 16. God tells David that David's son will indeed build the temple of the Lord. David's son will be treated like God's own son. God will discipline him if he sins, but his steadfast love will not depart from him. Yes, indeed, David's house and David's kingdom will be established forever. David had great plans to do something for God. He was going to build God a house, but God had bigger and better plans. God's plans were the right way up. God was going to build David a house. The next verses, uh, 18 through to 29, recount David's prayer of thanks. I want to look at these verses and see where they can provide us with a model for our prayers. In verse 18, we see David's amazement at the incredible promises that God has made to him and his son and his descendants. But first, notice what David does. King David went in and sat before the Lord in the NIV version. He went in either into the tabernacle or to his own palace. So this wasn't a public prayer. Also, he sat before the Lord. The word translated sat means more than just sitting down for a moment. In other contexts, it's translated as dwelt. It implies staying for a considerable time. David's prayer was not rushed. He devoted time to communing with God. Then how does he pray? He begins in verses 18 and 19 by acknowledging God's power 
The amazing things that he has done and promised are a small thing in God's eyes. David is recognizing that the greatness of the conquests and rule were as nothing to God. And yet God showed his love for him and his love for mankind. David's enduring kingdom was to teach mankind about God, to show them what it is to be loved by God. What more can I say, says David in verse 20? Well, what more can he say? This is the writer of many psalms, a man of words. He can't just stop there. Next, he acknowledges that God knows him with all his weaknesses and flaws. Nothing he has done, nothing we have done, is a secret from God. David knows that what he has achieved and what is to come are not his own doing. Verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. All the praise and the accolades that David has received over the years have not led him to believe that he has succeeded solely under his own ability or strength. He continues, verse 22. He knows of the gods of the surrounding countries, but despite all he's heard, there is none like the true God. God's salvation of Israel has made them a unique nation. The only one chosen by God, saved from slavery in Egypt and established in their own country in order to show his power. Well, at first sight, the prayers in the next verses, 25 to 29, may seem a bit strange. David has acknowledged God's mighty act and his power to fulfill his promises. So why does he pray for what he already has and what has already been promised? Well, of course, we don't, we're not told, but there are various possibilities. Perhaps after all that's happened, he still can't quite believe it. He's still feeling as in verse 18, who am I, O Lord God? So he needs to reassure himself by running through the promises again. I'm sure he doesn't think that God needs reminding. Perhaps he's summarizing it all, perhaps for his own benefit, just revising the main points. Or perhaps he's just carried away, sitting there before the Lord, so overwhelmed by the greatness of God and the wonderful promises he's received that he doesn't want to stop. He wants to stay longer, taking courage from God's kindness to continue in prayer and reflect on the revelation he's been given dwelling before the Lord, thanking him over and over again in no hurry to get back to the office. Finally, he accepts the amazing gift and concludes in verse 29, you, O Lord, my Lord, have spoken and my house will be blessed forever with your blessing. It is God who will build the house for David. So here's the king chosen by God the man after God's own heart. What do we see about him here? First of all, we see someone who is prepared to pause and seek God's will before acting. He could have rushed in to build the temple, but he was patient and sought Nathan's counsel, ultimately receiving a revelation from God. And he was humble before God, accepting the rebuke without any hesitation. It would be easy to pass over this point, taking it for granted, but it's really a bit surprising. Often, if we find we're in the wrong, we do anything but accept correction. We're more likely to make excuses to find someone else to blame. But David, the man after God's own heart, does none of that. 
Rather, he accepted the situation and listened with increasing amazement at what more God had to say. And he was grateful, thanking God in amazement for all that he had received and had been promised. So what can we learn from David's behavior in this chapter from the man after God's own heart? First, we can see that God may not always give us what we ask for, even when we think it is for his glory. God knows more than we do, and his plans are better than ours. Like David, we should respond with amazement and gratitude at all that God has done for us and realize that all our talents and education, we can do nothing that he needs. And then the prayer in verses 17 to 29. Let's just look at the way David prays. He goes inside and dwells before God. I don't know about you, but I'm certainly guilty of condensing my prayer time to fit in with other engagements. If we're aware, as David was, of the great goodness and generosity of God, then we should, be like him, be taking time to sit before him, in private, as David did, as well as in church, and to open our hearts and minds and ears to him. We should be aware and acknowledge we're not telling God anything he doesn't know. He knows us. He knows what is within us, the things we'd like to keep from him, as well as the joy that is too much for us to express. In spite of all, he loves us. And we again respond in amazement and gratitude. We think of the powers of this world, all that our ears have heard of them, and also the power of God, all that the Bible has taught us, and see how incomparably greater he is than any other. I mentioned earlier Calvin's series of 87 sermons. His sermon on verses 25 to 29 is entitled, The Nature of True Prayer. He points out that David is praying for the things he's already received or been promised. Calvin's view of this is clear. He writes, The promises which God has given us are not to make us lazy and nonchalant, but rather to encourage us to come to him. He rejects the suggestion we don't need to pray because God has promised to supply all our needs, leaving no room for asking him anything. Instead, we should obey God's command to pray, to dwell before him. In Ephesians 2.18, Paul writes, Through Jesus, we, both Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. And in Philippians 4.6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If we have this access to the Father, if we have this command to pray in every situation, how could we sit back and leave it all to him? We should continue in prayer, giving thanks for all we've received, not because God is in need of our praise and thanks, but that so that we can remember. We have an advantage over David. We've seen more of the story than he has, or he had, only partway through his reign. We know that God's words seemingly relating to a son yet to be born to David, in fact, had a much deeper and more lasting meaning. For it was not the case that David's throne continued forever. His son Solomon indeed took the throne after him and had an outwardly successful reign. But after Solomon's reign, the kingdom split in two with only the tribe of Judah following David's heirs. Eventually, both kingdoms fell, with the northern kingdom of Israel being dispersed among the nations and lost to history while the kingdom of Judah fell to conquest by Babylon and never regained its independence as a kingdom under one of David's heirs. 
for the true meaning of God's promise, we need to look further ahead to the house that God will build, to the house that he has built. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah, writing about the fall of Judah and the loss of the kingdom, still saw further ahead to a time when a true kingdom in David's line would be established. In Isaiah 11, we read that a shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, a new king who will establish righteousness and peace. We can look for guidance to the New Testament, where the writers clearly see this reference to David's son as referring not only to Solomon, but also to a later descendant, Jesus, who will take a greater throne and will himself be the temple. Jesus himself applies one of David's psalms to himself. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Peter also quoted this in his great speech at Pentecost. He said of David that being a prophet, he foresaw the resurrection of Christ and that he would be raised to sit at God's right hand. So, again, a summary. What have we learned from the story and what have we seen so far of its working out in history? Well, we've learned something about how to pray. Be humble, not rushing forward with our plans, but seeking God's guidance. His plans are always the right way up. It seems that Nathan and David had no problem hearing the Lord speak. It might seem, though, more difficult than that for us. I can speak only for myself, but I've rarely heard the voice of God speaking to me. But we do have other ways of hearing God's voice. First of all, of course, there's the Bible. I don't personally favor the practice of opening the Bible at random and expecting an answer to my problems, though of course God can use any means he wishes. Now, I think it's better to be constantly reading the Bible and reflecting on its meaning so that when we need guidance, we have it firmly in our memories. And then we have the Christian community here at TCU and more widely to whom we can look for wise and godly advice. That was how David started, checking his idea with Nathan the prophet. But like David and Nathan, we need to make sure that what we plan is in accordance with the Bible too. Make sure we have the plans the right way up. God has built a house for David's line, a house built on Jesus Christ, the inheritor of David's kingdom as the cornerstone. As we heard from Henry when he preached from the Romans a couple of weeks ago, we've been adopted into God's family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's follow David's example, continuing in prayer, giving it priority in our busy lives, making our requests known to God. But above all, let's bring our awe and thankfulness and love to our indescribable God, who put the stars in the sky and knows them by name. Our indescribable God, who sees the depths of my heart, yet he loves me the same. Let's pray to our loving Father God. Thank you, God, for the story of David for his example of prayer and humble trust in you. His acceptance as your plans are better than ours can ever be. Be at work within us, inspiring us to seek you diligently in prayer. May we bring all our cares to you, not clutching them to ourselves. May we know you more and more, and may your peace, which passes all understanding, fill our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>